Amen. I would invite you to turn to your Bibles to Psalm 118. Psalm 118. And I'm going to begin reading at verse 14 of Psalm 118. Uh, will you uh, let me do this, and then I'll get your announcement at the end. Can I do that? Can I take your announcement at the end? I'll, at the end of the service, I will, I, will, I will give your announcement, all right? Psalm 118, verse 14, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, and I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. I love impossible, improbable victories. I love impossible, improbable victories. It's one of the reasons I love sports so much, because every once in a while you get an impossible, improbable victory, a victory that makes you shake your head in disbelief as if to say, no way, no way. I didn't just see that, did I? Of course, sports fans got another one of those during March Madness this year when number 16, Farley Dickinson, beat number one seed Purdue. My apologies to any Purdue fans in the house. It was only, sec only the second time in NCAA history that a number one seed was taken down by a number 16 seed. It was crazy. It wasn't supposed to happen. Not again. Not in this lifetime. It was from a sports standpoint, an impossible, improbable victory. And if you know anything about impossible, improbable victories, whether in sports or in some other arena of life, you know it usually happens because someone does something heroic. Some dude comes off the bench who's only scored one point the whole season, and all of a sudden he drops 40 on them. Translation for those of you who don't speak sports, he scored 40 points. But someone does something heroic, something ridiculous, and everyone goes nuts. The crowd is chanting. The music starts playing. People are waving towels. Impossible, improbable victories rightly produce joy and celebration. Psalm 
118. It's part of a group of psalms, 113 to 118, that the people of Israel would sing during certain festivals. And one of those was the Passover, a celebration of an impossible, improbable victory, the most impossible, improbable victory uh, in Israel's history up to that point. It was sung in part to celebrate the time when they were set free from the most powerful nation on earth, the time when God came and by his power crushed the oppression of Egypt. It was the celebration of a people who trapped by a sea in front of them and an overpowering army chasing them watched a man raise a staff in the air while the God of heaven and earth parted the sea and allowed his people to walk through on dry ground and then wash away that powerful army that was chasing them. It was the greatest victory they had ever seen. Impossible and improbable. And every year when, when the Passover festival took, uh, took place, the people would sing this psalm and, and they would remind themselves of that impossible, improbable victory. And they were singing this psalm right up until the time of Jesus. Now, you might say, wait a minute. Why were these people singing a song during the celebration of a victory that took place hundreds of years back? It's like someone watching highlights of their team's championship over and over and over again. I'm not saying I do that. I'm just saying people do it. <laughs> why? Why were, they, why were they singing this song? The, the exodus had happened a thousand lifetimes ago. Well, they were singing it because they knew another victory was coming. God, God had actually promised it. He had promised to send another deliverer like Moses, only this time he wasn't just going to defeat a powerful army, he was going to defeat the army, the army led by sin and death and Satan, the army that is responsible for that, for what every human being in this world is trapped under. This psalm, in fact, became a messianic psalm. That is a song anticipating the coming of the Messiah. No wonder when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on that donkey, his followers picked up palm branches and began to wave them and to shout. No, no wonder they quoted verses from this psalm, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They had seen his miracles and they had heard his teaching. Peter himself had confessed Christ as the Messiah, the promised deliverer. Yes, I, I know there, there were people in the crowd who would later cry, crucify him, but there were people in the crowd also who believed, who were celebrating because they saw in him God's victory. All I came to do this morning, brothers and sisters, is to remind you that you are participants in the most improbable, impossible victory in human history. As you sit here today, those of you who have your faith in Jesus, you are conquerors. Yes, there is still brokenness in you. Yes, there is still brokenness in the world around you. But God has spoken through the work of His Son so that that brokenness, the brokenness of sin and death, cannot and will not conquer you. You know what Palm Sunday was for that first century crowd? 
It was God coming and announcing the score ahead of time. It was God coming and announcing the verdict ahead of time. It was God coming and announcing the victory ahead of time. No wonder when the Pharisees tried to get him to silence the crowd, Jesus responded by saying, do you know what is happening? If I make these people be quiet, the earth will start celebrating. The rocks will cry out. In other words, even the creation knows what is happening here. And today, as you sit here in this room, New City, I have one question for you. Do you know what's happening here? Do you know what has been done for you? If you do, there is no other appropriate response other than praise, no other appropriate heart cry than thankfulness. No wonder the one who is leading this song at the beginning and the end of this psalm says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. You are, you are a new city. You are people of God, the recipients of an impossible, improbable victory, a victory secured by the heroics of love, by a God who remembers his promises. Resurrection Sunday might be the height of praise for God's victory. But as the old folk used to say, you don't have to wait till Sunday morning. You can shout right now. You don't have to wait until the battle is over. You can shout right now. You don't have to wait till Resurrection Sunday because when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on that donkey, donkey, the victory had already been won. I know what some of you are saying. You're saying, I can't see it right now, Pastor. It's okay. God sees it for you. That's why he wrote it down, so he could keep reminding us, keep reminding us of what he sees and what he knows is coming because of what his son has done. Amen, people of God. So what is the shape of this victory for which we should give God praise? In order to answer that question, we have to first realize who the true worship leader is in this psalm. On several occasions in the song, we hear the voice of one person. He is leading the people throughout the psalm in a kind of call and response. He says, let Israel say, let Aaron say, let those who fear the Lord say. It's clear that among the many people invited to sing, there is one singer leading the way. Yet it's also clear that the one leading the singing is the one who has been delivered by God, the one who also brings deliverance to those who are singing with him. He says as much in verse 22, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, the the stone around which the whole building is being built. He's speaking about himself here. And if this is a psalm of David or any of the other kings, the point would be this. God has delivered me, and through my deliverance, he has brought deliverance to all of his people. Matthew 21, verse 42, Jesus says to the scribes and Pharisees, Have you never read the Scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. In other words this psalm is about me. (laughs) As I've said in the past, when a New Testament writer quotes an Old Testament passage, he's actually referring to the whole context of that passage he is quoting. 
Therefore, Jesus is saying, not only is this verse about me, but ultimately the whole song is about me. Therefore, Jesus is saying, not only is this verse about me, the whole song is about me. And that guy that keeps turning to the crowd and telling them to sing that, that God, about, about God's love and his victory and his deliverance, that's me. David may have sang the song about his own victory, but ultimately he was singing the Lord's song. <laughs> because Jesus' deliverance is ultimately our deliverance, he's also singing our song. Amen, people of God. So let me outline just a few verses here in this song, if I may, to encourage us this morning. This song of Jesus is, first of all, a song that reminds us that we will not be given over to death. We will not be given over to death. Among the many powerful statements of Jesus on the cross, there's the one that speaks to the overwhelming trust and confidence that Jesus had in the Father. It is the words found in Luke 23, verse 46, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus was about to die, about to take his last breath. He indeed had to face death, had to taste it for all of us so that we might be saved from death. He had to endure it so that you and I might be forgiven our sins and filled with the Spirit so that we might walk in the righteousness that God calls us to as his people. Yet even as he stared the certainty of death in the face, Jesus knew what was coming. He knew what was, he knew what was coming. He knew that even though his Father had given him to die for the sins of, of us all, he had not given him over to death. That is, the father was not handing the ultimate destiny of his son to death. He was not turning over control of his son's life to death. This is why the psalmist sings, I will not die, but live, and will proclaim what the Lord has done. Verse 18, the Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Remember, this is ultimately Jesus' song. This is the Lord saying, death will not speak last. It may win the day, but it will not win the victory. My spirit, which is another way of saying my life, is in the hands of the Lord, and it is not in the hands ultimately of death. And listen, people of God, because Jesus' deliverance is our deliverance. His song has become our song. So just like death had no mastery over him, it has no mastery over you and I. Just like he's saying, I will not die but live, so we can sing, I will not die but live. And we don't have to wait to Resurrection Sunday to sing it either. We can sing it while we are on the crosses of this life. We can sing it on the cross of pain. We can sing it on the cross of grief. We can sing it on the cross of injustice. We can sing it on the cross of racism. We can sing it on the cross of despair. We can sing it on the cross of anxiety. We can sing it on the cross of depression. We can sing it on the cross of hatred. I will not die, but live. This thing will not crush me. It will not be the last word over my life. What will be the last word over my life is what God himself has said, because Jesus has set me free from sin and death and everything that flows from it. The only thing that is in front of you, in front of you and in front of me, is resurrection life. 
I will not die, but live. The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can man do unto me? I just want to ask you this morning, where do you feel death pressing in on your life? As a follower of Christ, I want you to know this morning that wherever it presses in on you, God himself has declared that you will not die but live. You have eternity before you, is what he's saying. You have resurrection before you. Those who are in Christ will not be overcome by death. So again, I ask you, where do you feel death pressing into your life this morning? Is it pressing into your relationships? Let me remind you this morning that even there you will not die but live. Where reconciliation is possible, God will breathe life into you to show you how to work for that reconciliation. He will empower you to confront, to forgive, to love, to repent, to accept. If reconciliation isn't possible because the other person is clinging to death and their behavior, God will show you how to pray and how to forgive and how to love. Either way, as you follow Christ and all you're relating to others, you will not die but live. If death is pressing into your life in the area of some temptation to sin, I got news for you. If you follow Christ, you will live and not die. As you confess your sin and ask for God's power to resist the devil, your flesh, and and the pull of the culture around you, God will by his spirit come and give you strength. When you fail, he will come and give you grace to empower you to repent and seek for his forgiveness and power to start again. If you follow Christ and rely on his power, anger, rage, malice, lust, whatever other sin, it will not destroy you. You will not die but you will live because of what Jesus Christ has done. Amen, people of God. We will not die, but live. We will also walk, as the psalmist says, through the gates of righteousness. You have to picture the scene here. It says, open to me the gates, open to me the gates of righteousness in verse 19. You have to picture the scene here. The Lord, who is leading his people in a song of praise for God's salvation, is making his way to the gates of the city and its temple. With the crowd, he is leading, following him. This is Palm Sunday. There's great joy and celebration because they know that God's salvation has arrived. The one who is leading them is Savior. He is the Lord. He is the king. When they get to the gate, the king says, open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter in to give thanks to the Lord. Now, this is the king. It's his city. It's a city in need of his salvation, the salvation that he brings. It's a city that is in need of the righteousness that he brings. Yet there are credentials needed to get into the city and this temple. You have to be righteous to enter into these gates. And so, in the coming of Jesus, verse 20 functions almost like a reply to verse 19. And it's as if someone behind the gates was saying, this is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. In other words, who are you that we should open the gate to you? 
This is why we hear the response in verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. The gatekeepers should have known who was at the gate. The leaders of God's people should have known who was at the gate. Yet when Jesus came riding into Jerusalem, celebrated by the crowd on that donkey, which was a sign he had come to bring peace rather than welcome him, rather than receive him, they questioned him. They asked for his credentials. Don't you hear what the crowd is saying about you? They are quoting Psalm 118, the psalm about the coming of the Messiah. Make them stop. Who are you that they should be saying this about you? We know where you are from. We know who your mama is. And we know who your daddy is. They weren't anything special, so you can't be anything special either. And this crowd that is following you is crazy too, a bunch of nobodies who think that you are somebody. I know they didn't use those words, but but that's the implication behind their questions. Why should we let you in the gates? In other words, why should we receive you? Only the righteous are allowed into these gates. Only the Messiah can lead his people in this song of praise. There is a psalm that sets up a similar scene. It's Psalm 27. It says, lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. the response is similar to Psalm 118. Rather than open the gates, the gatekeepers ask for credentials. Who is this king of glory? And just like Psalm 18, the king responds, and it's a response that every single person in here that follows Jesus ought to rejoice in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. It's not just that you and I will live and not die. We will get into the city. We will get into the city. The gates of righteousness will be open for us, and they will be open because the Lord has won the battle and has secured our righteousness through the sacrifice of His own life on our behalf. And so, we will participate in the blessing of that righteousness that God has secured for us. Who is this King of glory? He is the Lord strong and mighty. He is the Lord mighty in battle. He is the Lord who has secured your righteousness. Amen, people of God. The righteousness that the King has won for us has granted us access into the kingdom of heaven. We are citizens of that kingdom through faith in Christ. Its blessings are ours now. Paul says it this way, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. He has made you righteous so that you can get into the city, so that you may receive its blessings. And so I ask this morning, what spiritual blessing are you trusting God for right now? What spiritual blessing do you need Him to provide? For some of you, it may be the blessing of hope, the blessing of hope. Trial and tribulation can eat away at our hope. The psalmist says here, the Lord has chastened me severely. Some of you have been through some hard trials, some difficult things. 
and trial and tribulation can eat away at our hope and our confidence in God's promise to us individually and collectively, but we who have been made righteous have a certain and sure hope. It's a hope communicated in another song which tells us, for his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Our nights of weeping may be long, but they will not outlast God's favor. Our our nights of weeping may be long, but they will not outlast God's favor. Our, Our nights of weeping may be long, but they will not outlast the joy that God promises to give to all of those who hope in Him, for all of those who hope in His Son. Your weeping may endure for a night, but there is a morning coming. Night night doesn't last forever. Eventually, the morning has to dawn, and God has promised us that our weeping, our sorrow, our grief, our pain, the things that we are going through will not last forever. They will not outlast His favor. And they will not outlast the joy that He promises to give to all those who hope in Him. For others of you, the spiritual blessing may be the freedom from fear. You may be afraid that those same circumstances that are causing you to lose hope may in fact also destroy you or those around you. Perhaps you're afraid that your enemies might have the last laugh, so to speak. Let the words that open this psalm and that close and encourage you of who God is. For his steadfast love endures for how long? For how long? Forever. Your weeping endures for a night. His love endures forever. Your weeping endures for a night. His steadfast love last forever. Amen, people of God. I just came to tell somebody who's in that night of weeping, God isn't going to forget. God isn't going to ignore. God isn't going to abandon you in the battles you face in this life. Amen, people of God. We will not be given over to death. We will enter into the gates of righteousness we will bring sacrifices of praise to God. The Lord is God. He has made His light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords. Go up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, and I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, and His steadfast love endures forever. The psalm ends with the people who have now been led into the city and its temple, bringing their sacrifices to the Lord. These sacrifices are sacrifices of thanks and praise in response to what God has done. God has shown His loving kindness, His deliverance, His protection, His commitment to set things right. What else can the people do in the face of this but give thanks to the Lord, to rejoice in God's proving Himself to be strong and mighty? Thanksgiving shouldn't be something we engage in during that holiday season which we have given that name. 
Thanksgiving is meant to be the tone and tenor of the life of the people of God. You know why God built into his people's life in the old covenant a number of festivals? It was so that God's people could be reminded of his faithfulness to them, and so that in remembering that faithfulness, they might give thanks to him and rejoice in him. But, but listen to what I said. The thanks that God's people are to give is tied to the concrete expressions of God's salvation in their lives. The Lord isn't leading us into thanksgiving and praise based on what He might do. He is leading us in thanksgiving and praise for what He has already done and what He is promising to do. Our our praise, therefore, is not a phony praise. It's a praise that has real substance to it. When you come there on Sunday morning and and hear the gospel sung and hear the gospel preached and see the gospel demonstrated in the celebration of the sacraments, you are not witnessing what God might do. You are witnessing what God has already done. And when you witness what God has already done, when when you remember the ways that He has already worked salvation in your life, it ought to cause you to Put your hands together and give praise to God. It ought to cause you to lift your hands and worship to Him. It ought to cause you sometimes to want to stomp your feet. I I know Presbyterians aren't used to dancing, but it also also calls you to dance. It ought to cause you to move your body and give praise to the Lord because He is good and His steadfast love endures forever. And what he's already done ought to give you confidence for what he will do. What he's already done ought to give you confidence for what he will do. All I'm saying is that when you come into this house, you have a reason to give thanks. You have a reason to give praise. No, everything in your life is not right. No, all your relationships are not as they should be. No, you don't have all the money you wish that you had. No, everything is not as it should be, and yet you have a reason to give thanks. You have a reason to give praise, for you have been delivered from the power of controlling sin and death. You have been set free, and you have a glorious future in front of you. And this, brothers and sisters, this is not our doing, but it is, as the psalmist says earlier in this psalm, the right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. And I'm thankful that that hand is on my side. I'm thankful this morning that that hand is on your side. I'm thankful that that hand today still does valiantly. That hand still rescues. That hand still sets free. That hand still provides. That hand still uplifts. That, 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 that hand still leads. That hand still guides. That, that hand still draws you in. That, 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 that hand still blesses you. That, that, that hand still comforts you. That, 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 that hand still does valiantly. Because if it doesn't, why are we here? 
If that hand doesn't do valiant things, if that hand doesn't rescue, if that hand doesn't deliver, we all might as well go home and watch TV. But you know what? That hand does valiantly. That hand delivers. That hand sets free. I don't know about you, but I don't come here this morning to play church. I don't come to pretend. I don't put my suit on just so y'all can say I look good. I come into this place to give worship to God. I come into this place to give praise to the King. I come in this place to lift Him up. I come in this place to glorify His name. I come into this place to say thank you. I come into this place to say I love you. I come into this place to say you are my God, you are my King, and I worship you. I I don't come here this morning just so y'all can say, isn't he a great preacher? No, I ain't even preaching to y'all. I'm preaching to myself because I give praise to God for what He has done in my life, for what He can continues to do in my life. And my life ain't great. I got trials. I got tribulations. I got hardships. I got difficulties. I can't pay my bills sometimes, by the way. I I, I need food on my table and clothes on my back. And you know what? He provides it. So I come into this house. Thank you. I come into this house. I praise you. I come into this house. I worship you. I'm thankful for what he's done because he didn't have to do it. I don't deserve it. He don't have to do it. I don't deserve it. He don't have to do it. I didn't have to eat yesterday, but I did. I don't have to have a roof over my head, but I got one. I don't have to have transportation, but I got it. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. So again, you got to get the image. As people are coming to the temple, as the king has, 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 has opened the gates and made them righteous so that they can enter in, they're all bringing their sacrifices to the Lord in praise and thanks, and they're binding the sacrifice to the altar. And one comes up and binds his sacrifice, and another comes up and binds his sacrifice, and another comes up and binds his sacrifice, and another comes up and binds his sacrifice. And and as you look and see, all you see in the temple is filled with sacrifices of praise to the Lord for what he has done. If you're thankful for Palm Sunday, if you're thankful for Jesus riding into Jerusalem to pay the price for your sin, it's worth lifting your hands. The Lord says in Isaiah, what he gives to people who have a faint spirit is a garment of praise. A garment of praise attached not to, not to things that are not true, but to the things he has already done. Concrete expressions of his salvation. Amen, people of God. I want to invite you to do something this week as individuals and in your families. Write down the things you're thankful for. Write down the things for which you give God praise. Start your day doing that and close your day doing it. See if David's words become true in your actual day-to-day experience. If I had 10,000 tongues. See if it becomes true 
than if you had 10,000 pages or 10,000 pens, Presbyterians. The point of this exercise would be to remind ourselves that as much as we have to grieve in this world, so we have much to give God thanks for. As much as we have to grieve in this world, so we have much to give God thanks for. God is doing something in your life every day for which you have cause and reason to give him thanks. I just want to lead you in giving him that thanks and that praise that he is that he has done. I don't care if you praise like me. I don't care if you worship the way I do. But you ought to give him thanks. You ought to give him praise. You ought to celebrate the things he has done in your life through the salvation that he has won for you. Maybe. Maybe, though. Those written words might become spoken words of praise in this assembly as we remember the steadfast love of the Lord for each of us, each and every day of our lives. Amen, people of God. Amen. Our victory, our victory, brothers and sisters, would have been impossible but for the steadfast love of the Lord, a steadfast love that caused him to send a Savior. And because of him, we will not die but live. Because of him, we have entered into the gates of righteousness. And because of him, because of him, we can offer sacrifices of praise to our God and King. So from now, when you read Psalm 118, remember, you're singing the Lord's song, and you're also singing your song, because the Savior has set you free from sin and death and all that flows from it. Amen, people of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do give you praise. We do worship you. We do glorify you. We do give you thanks. We don't deserve salvation. We didn't earn it. We're not good in and of ourselves. We confessed it in our confession of sin, Lord, that it is your mercy, your mercy that has set us free. And the psalmist declares that it is you who, is, who are good and it is your steadfast love that endures forever. So I pray, help us to remember that this Palm Sunday, that it was the steadfast love of the Lord that sent his son into Jerusalem on that day, sent his son into Jerusalem to die on a cross, to set his people free from sin and death. We worship you, Jesus, for without your sacrifice, we would not be saved. So we bless you in this house, and we give you thanks. And Jesus, it's in your name that we pray.